Welcome to Vegan Business Talk with Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business. Hello and welcome to this episode of Vegan Business Talk. I'm Katrina Fox, journalist, author and PR consultant and founder of Vegan Business Media, a content events and training platform providing success strategies and resources for vegan business owners and entrepreneurs. Firstly, a quick announcement. I get a lot of people contacting me asking how they can work with me. So this is a little plug to let you know that I offer a range of services to vegan and plant-based business owners and entrepreneurs. From online training and group coaching to PR, content creation and copywriting services and one-on-one tailored individual private consultations. So if you're wanting help to promote or grow your vegan business, brand, product, service, book or other creative project, head over to veganbusinessmedia.com and click on the work with me menu link for more details. Now for the main part of the show. My guests today, yes, I said guests, we have two wonderful young entrepreneurs in the house today, Ed and Natasha Taton from Bread. Now, Ed and Natasha are animal rights advocates and passionate environmentalists who founded Bread, a 100% plant-based organic sourdough bakery that sources fine ingredients locally with an ever-changing seasonal menu in the ski resort of Whistler in Canada. Now, they're both originally from the UK. Natasha is a former English teacher and Ed is a professional fine dining chef. Earlier this year, the husband and wife team won the Best Youth Entrepreneur Award at the Small Business British Columbia Awards. And today they are coming to us. This shows their dedication live from their vacation in Montreal. So welcome, (laughs) Ed and Natasha. Thanks for having us, Katrina. It's great to be here. Oh, it's so good to have you here because I know you've been, you know, you've been listening to the show a lot. And one of the requirements, I don't know if people know this, is that people have to be running their business for at least three years to be on the show, unless they run other businesses in the past, because it can be quote easy enough to kind of start a business, but to actually maintain it and to have the insights to share, you know, you need to have done it over a little bit of time. And I'm so pleased that you've hit that three-year mark and I've watched you grow and I know how hard you work so <laughs> I am delighted to have you on Vegan Business Talk to share some of your your learnings and your insights so let's kick off with the first question which is literally how did two young Brits end up running a vegan bakery in a ski resort in Canada? <laughs> well I think I think we were destined to work together I sort of pushed away from it for years and years but I think um with both, we're, we're both very passionate people and hardworking people. And um, it sort of, it was just, it was organically came together, basically. I think uh, our paths were destined to, we were destined to work together. We, we were working Canada. in the UK. Yeah. yeah, so we were working in the UK and Ed was a chef at a, a head chef at a little boutique hotel. And I was working as an English teacher. And um, for me personally, I, I, did quite well in my career and I got promoted and I was ended up marketing the school at conferences and to universities and doing all sorts of contract agreements with different courses and um, it was quite interesting and then through circumstances outside of the school um, 
this whole kind of industry had a big shift. And my role um, that I had as marketing academic course coordinator kind of came to a halt. And it was kind of null and void. And I felt really deflated. And I really wanted a break from that career when you just put all your efforts into something and then it kind of ends up resulting in not much at all. I wanted a break and Ed was kind of um, at a point where he'd achieved a lot of success and actually he was starting to get quite a lot of um, notice by the BBC. He was getting interviewed mm -hmm. to um, like audition for chef programs and stuff like that. But I think at that time he wasn't um, very, he was a bit nervous about being in front of the camera. It wasn't really what he was feeling. And we both just needed a bit of a break and a change. So we thought, let's go to Canada for a year and do six months in a ski resort and just have fun snowboarding and six months in Montreal. Um, but when we got to Whistler, um, we actually really loved it and we didn't want to leave. And while I was in Whistler, I went vegan back in 2014. So my second year in Whistler. And we also never made it to Montreal until uh, just yesterday we arrived. <laughs> so eight years later <laughs> for a vacation, though, this time not to work. So once I went vegan, Ed soon went vegan um, and, well, I didn't want to have any animal products in the house. And so he was eating vegan at home for a while and then eventually uh, it just rubbed off on him a few documentaries later. Nice, nice. <laughs> and then I remember being at a party and somebody asked him, it was a vegan like potluck, and somebody said, um, are you vegan to Ed? And he went, yes, I'm vegan. And I nearly fell over across the road because like <laughs> this fine dining chef that used to be really proud to like butcher animals and use every part of them was now telling people he was vegan. I was like, yes. So oh, um, I love that. I yeah, love that. Yeah. So, so eventually <laughs> I had this kind of idea that I wanted to open this vegan cafe and it would be this like community hub. And then Ed went on his own journey um, into making bread, and he can tell you about that. But eventually, we kind of morphed our ideas. Wow. About the bread? Yeah, so like Tash said, I've worked in fine dining kitchens all my life, loved making everything from scratch, um, you know, using seasonal produce. Um, and then I found sourdough about 14 years ago in Bristol in a small sort of um, French bistro restaurant um, and sort of learned with the, the head chef. Um, and really fell in love with the simplicity of it, of flour, water, and salt. And then brought that to, to Canada when I started working at a farm-to-table restaurant there. We were making everything in-house, but not the bread. Um, so I sort of said to the owners, the head chef, I'd be you know happy to start making sourdough here. Um, and it just grew. Um, I was baking on my days off and for our yoga studio. Um, and people were like, where can we buy this? And organically like it just got the cogs turning we were like well maybe we can start a small business there's no one really making sourdough at this time it was 2016 and um i just approached the owners and said can i rent the kitchen um because we weren't open for lunch so i said i could make the sourdough on the wednesday morning and then put it in the fridge it ferments all day and all night and then i bake it fresh on the thursday morning and it was all through facebook um it was mostly young mums families that would buy it and it became just word of mouth and trust um, I didn't have a payment system it was all just done pre-order I put their name in a little book and then they'd come and pick it up and when they picked up I said hey do you want bread next week what is it okay I do one loaf um, one type so it'd be sesame sourdough or walnut and fig or something like that and it was moving market research it was really good because I didn't have to you know input a lot of money I already had the kitchen space the equipment 
I bought some tins and some containers. I probably spent, you know, 500 pounds, a thousand dollars, um, which is nothing for a startup. Um, and it just grew and grew. We started with baking 30 loaves for, for friends and the yoga studio. Um, and then it went to 50 and a hundred, and then we were averaging 150. Um, and I definitely grew out the equipment. And, and the customers were saying that like, was when the customers when were you're going to open a yeah. shop like we want to buy this every day we don't have to wait once a week so we wow. saw the demand and that's where we sort of crossed paths and we said okay well we could open a bakery you know we could sell our house in the uk which was an old victorian house that we were renting rent renting out you know so <laughs> it wasn't making us money it needed a lot of work so we were like well we're residents now let's sort of sell the house invest that money borrow a bunch more money and, and open up a brick and mortar um, bakery. Wow. I love that. I love that story. And I've heard bits of it, but I haven't heard it in the full, mm -hmm. um, yeah, the, the full thing. So I think that's really interesting. And I love that you actually did that research, like you said, like, you know, you, you outlaid a small amount of money to test the mm -hmm. market. Some people will go to markets, you know, do market stores. Exactly, yeah. And then, but I love that you, you found this opportunity where mm -hmm. it was risk-free. If it didn't work, okay, yeah. you put in a 500 pounds, you know, no, no big deal. And you obviously learned a lot. So you obviously got that, that customer demand. Because it's interesting because somewhere like Whistler, uh, you know, it's not necessarily not that I've been to Whistler, but it's not, you know, like a big city that's vegan friendly where it mm -hmm. could be, quote, easier to open up um, a vegan business. So tell us a little bit about um, some of the challenges that you faced in opening up your own store. and how First of all, there was a lot of negativity around um, the location. Uh, so Whistler Mountain um, is part of a ski resort, Whistler Blackcomb, and there's an, the main village is Whistler Village, and the original village um, where one of the gondolas is is Creekside, and that's where we are. So we're actually um, five kilometres south of the main village on the backside of Whistler Mountain. And uh, when we moved to Whistler, Creekside Village was empty, and there hadn't been really anything in these spots. And it was really weird for us because we have uh, two to three million tourists a year come to Whistler and we're two hours away from Vancouver. So even though we're not in a city, we have a lot of city people and they might have lots of vegan options in their city. And when they come on a ski trip, they want home away from home and they want options. So it doesn't matter to us that we're in a rural location with only 10 to 12,000 permanent residents when we see so much foot traffic from other places. Um, so that's the one thing is that we're not in a city, but we have city people visiting us, um, especially day trippers from Vancouver and people with timeshare and, and holiday homes, that kind of thing. So at first, all of our neighbours said, well, why are you opening in Creekside? Creekside's a dead zone. Nothing works in Creekside. Creekside's empty. And it was kind of like, oh, OK, yeah, maybe we'll see. Because for us, we could see potential. There's a gondola there. There's free parking bus stops, valley trail for biking, um, supermarket, gym, bank, all the amenities for, for locals. So actually, it, it has actually ended up being a good location for us. And we have proved people wrong. Mm -hmm. But the first year, we had a lot of sarcastic people coming in, how's business? And then telling us how like nothing works in this spot. <laughs> well, now wow. they stop saying that. They stop saying that. So I think we've proven that uh, business is going pretty well. Um, and so that was a bit of a challenge, kind of just overcoming the, the negativity and then, um, you know, just learning how to hire and train staff effectively, learning what uh, advertising or marketing mediums work and which ones don't work and sort of 
wasting money on things like recruitment, wasting money on uh, print ads. Um, I say waste money because you can't really tell how much traction you get from from an ad. So it's kind of learning a lot about all that kind of stuff if you have no background in it. And then obviously COVID was a huge thing to navigate um, for people that had been in business less than a year. So um, losing your staff and feeling like you're kind of starting from the ground up again when you thought that you would be a lot further along in the journey. Those have but been I some think of the challenges. At the same point, that was kind of a benefit to us because we didn't rest on our laurels. We were still kind of in our first year. We were a week away from our first um, birthday of the business. And we were just like, okay, well, how do we pivot? You know, that yeah. was the sort of word everyone this was using. This is when using. COVID hit. When, yeah. when COVID hit. So kind of we yeah. used that to our advantage and we weren't yeah. going to let it, you know, pull us down. We had sold our house and invested everything. We did, you know, fully um, our, um, what's the word, USP. You know, we really believed in our concept. So we just had faith in, in both of us that we, you know, we could ignore all these people that were hating on us or that were doubting us and, and just keep going. And we used the, the, the COVID challenge as an opportunity to to gain media attention. Um, as you know, I, we got mentioned in Forbes magazine for such a quick pivot, a 24-hour turnaround from closing down to launching online, um, just reacting super fast because we just thought we've got so much momentum. We have record sales month and month. We can't just close down and sit back and wait like we have to keep going and keep getting people bread and that they really appreciated that because all the other bakeries and shops just totally shut down with no messaging or anything whereas us it was like we're online order now and all well, coming in I was like oh god like that's an um, interesting one because like you say the hospitality industry was hit very hard by COVID and the tourism industry was hit by COVID. So just before we, we dive in a little bit more to the COVID, pre-COVID, what would you say, like, who were your main customers? Like, were they mainly, like, compared, like, with locals compared with visitors, whether it's day trippers or tourists, who were your main clientele? Like, r- roughly what what sort of percentage were which? Yeah, I'd say it was, it was probably 50-50 because um, 50% locals, 50% tourists. Because we still class the locals, we have Whistler, but we have Squamish, which is a town, 30 minutes drive south, and Pemberton, which is 20 minutes north. Yeah, so I'll just backtrack. So we were 50% yeah, so locals 50-50. and 50% yeah. tourists. 50-50, exactly. And that's, all, that's pretty consistent throughout the year. Wow. But okay. I mean, okay. in the tourism's changed. So where is it? There were, there were a lot of Europeans and Americans, obviously, before covid coming to Ski Canada and and obviously now it's been a lot more Canadians who haven't been able to leave Canada so they might have gone to adults but they all come to Whistler now because it's probably the best ski resort in Canada if not North America. Okay okay good to know all right I'm just hoping the internet's gonna help because it, it does it is keep cutting out so we'll we'll have to see what we can do there I know I can see it's just quite weak your signal's quite weak so you're a bit fuzzy but I'm just more concerned about the audio if your visuals go it's not so much but as long as we've got audio um and I can edit this bit out in the audio episode so all right we'll see how we go so so with COVID so it it hit and like you said you pivoted very quickly so how did you go from literally like overnight to being able to order online because I would have thought that would take time like setting up you know a system and an online store and, and all of that I'm um, tell us a little bit briefly how did you do that so quickly 
So the um, the website platform we were using was Squarespace, and um, we knew that there was a commerce function, but we'd never upgraded to that before. We just had a kind of website portal for people to read our menu and that kind of thing for the in-store kind of offering. Um, so we just upgraded to a commerce platform through the Squarespace website. And uh, because it's like they have a template, it was pretty user friendly. There was a little bit of like figuring stuff out. Um, the, the biggest issue I had was figuring out how to schedule people so that they came at a specific time because there were no guidelines then on how to operate. We kind of had to make it up. So we had to schedule people as five minute pickups. Um we do 10 hours of that back to back um and then it just got it just kept creeping like earlier and later and later until it'd be like i don't know like eight o'clock in the morning i think i think we would, 7 yeah. p.m or something it was just it was getting out of hand um so trying to integrate scheduling that was a real challenge and um i actually got on the phone to silicon valley and spoke to them like techie people i didn't know what i was doing and some really nice but very wealthy tech engineer said I'm just going to do this for you because he could see my website and how much money we were taking. It was like, people usually pay me like $500 an hour, but um, I feel for you guys. I'm going to, I'm going to do this for free. And he, he integrated it for us. And he was a bit of an angel actually. Wow. So um, he, he really helped us. So I just feel like, you know, the stars aligned and um, this, this whole journey has just been kind of been like, if it's with the mantra, if it's easy, do it. And if it's difficult, stay away. And when everything's kind of easy and people show up at the right time and things just slot into place, uh, you know, you're on the right path. So that's wow. kind of how, how it all went. But, but I've actually had to upgrade the website since and um, sort of integrate more advanced scheduling and stock like daily inventories that don't affect each other. It's all quite technical and boring. I won't bore all the listeners with it, but we've upgraded since to a more advanced platform so that we can be more pandemic proof in the future. Got it. I love it. Wow. <laughs> so let's talk about you. You've obviously had success like pretty much since you've opened. Um, you know, like you said, you proved the locals wrong. You've, you've opened in a, a place that know where it wasn't really happening and you've you've really kind of created something so let's dive in a little bit about how you've done that so how have you attracted people to your business first of all let's talk about vegan versus plant-based because I know you you refer mm -hmm. to as you know an organic sourdough plant-based bakery um so tell us about the use of vegan versus plant-based and why your your choice of those I think when we first opened the bakery this sort of like two and a half years ago or even three years ago when we were planning the concept of the bakery and how that word plant-based vegan were used, it's changed so much in that short amount of time. You know, we've seen these huge corporations take on plant-based options and they're not even plant-based. So it's the, the trust issue. But for us three years ago, we wanted to make it acceptable and like inviting for everyone. And that's what we always said. We were like, we're a plant-based bakery. Everyone eats plants. Everyone's welcome. Um, but now what we found is we're using it more and more in our media, the word vegan, yeah. because people are demanding vegan options and they want that security. When they come in, they say, no, what is vegan? Because they know that other companies, it, it's a bit blurred, the lines between plant-based and vegan. And, and some people are, you know, not using it correctly. So now we are using vegan more and more. Um, we say everything's vegan and you can see it in the customer's face. They're just like relief. They're like, wow, I can choose everything. <laughs> or disbelief. And they go, is that vegan? You go, yeah, that's vegan. Is that vegan? Yeah, everything's vegan. Is that vegan? Coconut whip with, you know, your chai. And they're like, is it vegan? And we're like, 
Yeah. Yes. Chocolate sprinkles on your cappuccino. So, I'm vegan. Yep. So the chocolate sprinkles. We have well. looked more and more into sort of um, certification and, and sort of having something on the door. To, you know, everything is vegan and, you know, we look at all our, our products and all our sugars and things like that. You know, even products that you, you don't normally assume or you assume are naturally vegan, but not always. So um, I we've think- come out the closet. We're closet <laughs> vegans. Now we're loud and proud. And I love that. And so what impact does that have? Because given that I assume that your customers are not all vegans, you've obviously got no. a high percentage of people who are, are not vegan or pre-vegan, as I like to call them. So yeah. what impact has that had um, now that you started to use the word vegan more? Because I, I remember I interviewed, in fact, they were in Canada, actually. Um, a young woman, I can't remember her name, uh, but she's in Canada and she um, turned her health store completely vegan. And initially there was some pushback from customers, you know, from some mm-hmm. customers. But, you know, the, it, it, the business still carried on and was successful because enough people were, were either didn't mind or were happy that it had gone vegan. So what reaction have you had to kind of being more vocal and using the word vegan? I think the people that are looking for vegan have noticed it. But people that are pre-vegan, as you say, um, haven't even noticed it. You know, for example, we're in Montreal now and people sort of our followers through Instagram and thing are sending recommendations that, clearly aren't vegan restaurants or anything like that <laughs> so it's kind of like uh the people that are looking for it have, have found it and noticed it yeah. um and maybe it's attracting new customers as well that sort of were like oh they're just plant-based but now we're vegan it's more on the radar and we're having google reviews that are mentioning you know that we're vegan so we're getting those keywords come up in google searches as well people do say things sometimes like i can't believe it's vegan or you wouldn't even know it was vegan uh, which I'm slightly offended by when they say that because I'm like, <laughs> if they say like, oh, it tastes great, I love it. I go, yes, yeah, because it's vegan. And I have seen like one young <laughs> kid just kind of looked at me like sort of in horror and then like, but I liked it. And you just saw his, saw his brain <laughs> processing all those thoughts. But the customer um, mentality has changed so much. Like on opening day uh, back in March 2019, when we opened the doors of the brick and mortar space, there were uh, four ladies that came in and they were dairy farmers from New Zealand and they ordered coffee and we had a whole conversation about which milk they would want and they got really mad that we didn't have dairy and one of them leaned in and she literally hissed at me you should have dairy and I just remember being like so overwhelmed by this response and just thinking like are we really going to have like this conversation now and I was just like this is we had a whole line of people to serve and we didn't want to put anyone else off so we just said so just the walnut and fig sourdough is it for today? Oh, thank you very much. And just kind of got rid of them. But nowadays people come in and we and if they order a coffee and we say, oh, oat milk's okay, literally every single person is just like, yeah, fine. Or they'll say like, oh, actually, Jeff Almond. Um, yeah, we do. So we just found that people aren't bothered anymore. Mm-hmm. That's just what we found. And um, obviously for the lactose and egg allergen people, um, they're so happy. If, they, if it's a mum and their kid's lactose intolerant, they can't go anywhere and get something for the for them. So when they come to us, a few of the mums have said that their kids have got allergies or their husband or whatever, and uh, they're just really delighted that they can trust trust us because they can't trust other places. That's a really good point, and I think that's becoming more of a thing. Now, I know certain, like England's uh, or the UK's oldest like chocolate manufacturer um, mm-hmm. uh, is, have, made, have made, had a big market, um, you know, getting... Um, 
allergen with the allergen market it's a whole other market so it's certainly useful i think for people to to know about because it can mm -hmm. open open you up to you know extra customers and i know one of our listeners heather landex is very um in on that so i'm sure she'll be delighted <laughs> <laughs> yeah. on that um so talk us through some of the marketing strategies i know you said natasha that um you know you had to you would kind of trial and error you tried a bit of print advertising but you can't really track mm -hmm. it so how have you got customers to your cafe in certainly in the beginning what was not a really happening area how did that happen what would have been some of the most successful marketing strategies for you I'd say Instagram is big yeah Instagram has definitely been very powerful for us um, I think uh, people are generally interested in food you know it's very visual um, through Instagram this you know and also you can do tutorials which have been really helpful because it's kind of sharing knowledge for free so they're getting something, there's a bit of, you know, give and take there. They can see daily specials. So that's been really popular. Um, and then also, you know, in 2020, with the, with the beginning of the pandemic, it felt like half of the world was making sourdough. So, again, a lot of new followers there, questions about how to make bread. People had time. They knew it's, you know, it's a healthy option for bread. Um, it's a fermented product. It's naturally, it's vegan anyway. Um, so I think that really helped us as well. And now the people that either are still but making. Can I just pause you there? How did that help you? Given that if people around the world were making their own bread, how did that help you as a business? Because <laughs> they suddenly realised how difficult it is. They got ed by through process of trying to make it. They got educated and they developed a much deeper appreciation for the craft. And when they went back to work, or when they tried a sourdough a few for a few weeks and it didn't work they suddenly uh, were a lot more drawn to to buy sourdough regularly um, from Ed. And and even though there was a pandemic... So, so that would be more people that were coming into your store. I was just curious if you'd managed to monetize like people internationally, um, you know what I mean, yeah. like have been making the bread, but then they're, unless they come to Whistler, they can't buy it from you. So well, we did curious. start doing consultations with other bakers oh, okay. around the world. Yeah. Uh, we added that as a feature and it was because there was so much interest during that sourdough craze that uh, we were getting inundated with questions. It was it was taking up so much time that we said, we said, well, you know what, if you want all this knowledge and time, that's fine, but there's a price on it. So we added a consultation um, package to our website and we found people in like really random places like Jamaica and St. Lucia and sometimes more local um, in Vancouver, but people took advantage of that. So we were able to get a little bit of income through doing that. And I think also, even if they're not in Whistler or even Canada, they might you know, tag a friend, oh, you're going on holiday here or you live in Vancouver, have you been to to Bread? So you can kind of monetize it through there because it's kind of word of mouth still. It's kind of like a quick quick tag, their friend, and they say, oh, you should check this place out. And we've had people say, oh, my daughter lives in Hong Kong, but she recommended that I come here and they live in Vancouver. So um, that's been really nice. It's definitely been the most powerful social media um, tool that we've used. But like Natasha said, we've tried to add different streams of revenue through the website. So be the e-commerce the e or the um, consultation. And also getting local press works really well. Whenever we get um, a full page spread on our bakery, um, we do notice an uptick in locals coming in, people that still say they've never heard of us. I'm like, really, where have you been? Um, but they come in and um, getting the traction in Forbes was really helpful because then I went to the local paper and said, hey, would you like to cover our pivot story? Sent them a press release. At first, the editor said, uh, 
a lot of businesses are pivoting, wasn't that bothered. And then I was able to leverage Forbes and say, oh, really? Oh, Forbes are interested, but hey, I guess you're not. And then suddenly it was like they were interested and they did a big page on us. And we actually managed to attract our biggest spending customer we've ever had, very wealthy person that would come in and spend uh, anywhere between 250 to over $700 per order, which is just unheard yeah. of in a small micro bakery. So that definitely worked. And that was all through what I learned through doing Katrina Fox's media <laughs> course, Vegans in the Limelight, little plug I, there. I swear um, I haven't paid her to say that. I swear. This is a live <laughs> but, testimonial but I, from my heart. <laughs> but, but you know what I love about you, Natasha, is that you took action. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because, and, and especially like with local media, you know, they are looking for local stories. And I love that you were able to go. And, and I love the fact that you said that, well, okay, you're not interested, well, Forbes were. Um, and that was, <laughs> that was a great story. And you were willing to put yourself out there and, you know, risk being rejected because, yes, yeah, sometimes mm-hmm. you get rejected, but you you really do the work. And I, I really love that. So I, I love you. that they, yeah, that that's worked out for you. So Instagram's worked out well and also the media coverage. And do you have people opting in to your own newsletter, like to gather your own list as well? Yeah, we do. Um, Because of changing over websites, um, we've had sort of uh, issues connecting different MailChimp and SEO optimization stuff. I don't really know that much about that stuff. I kind of have a little team that we work with for that. But um, there was a sort of there has been a bit of a a lull in signups recently, but uh, we're getting back on track now because everything should be sorted out. And we were seeing kind of double numbers on signups month to month um, before we switched websites. So we do have a list of, um, I'm not exactly sure where it is now, but last I saw it was like 500. And so we only had a newsletter launched somewhere in the last year. So we, we're still working on growing that list. Um, yeah. And, and, and we try to incentivize that by keeping it interesting. And they yeah. obviously like being a newsletter, they get the first notice when we're going to do specials for Christmas or for Easter, you know, yeah. hot cross buns. If people know, okay, it's live on the, you know, the online shop now, we see huge orders coming through because yeah. the newsletter's gone out. So it's been really beneficial for us to have that um, for, for the sort of, you know, marketing. Yeah. Way yeah. Well. We just had a record-breaking Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, Canadian Thanksgiving is um, in the middle oh. of October. And we sent a newsletter out like the beginning of that week and suddenly like all these orders came in and it was quite overwhelming it was it was really really hectic I I couldn't believe how many orders came in so it seems like we're just starting to learn how to leverage newsletters (laughs) and make them work and the timing of them and everything so yeah I love that. I think that's great mm. because it's great to have Instagram and so yeah, yeah, and that's very visual. But it's great to be able to get them onto your own list as well in case mm. anything ever happens or if Instagram decides they don't like yeah. you anymore and all that kind of thing. So I love that you're you're leveraging that. And you just yeah. learn as you go along and you you know you figure out what, what works. How what do you what do you think makes you stand apart? Because obviously you're not the only bakery in, in town, so to speak. So what do you think makes you set apart and, and will continue to help set you apart from others? We make everything in-house. Yeah. Can you hear me now? Yeah, so we bake everything fresh every morning. Um, I, I've always liked when I started bread in 2016 out of the, the restaurant, you know, um, parents would bring their kids and they can see where the bread's made. Um, and there's just the nice connection there. So I think that's a lot of bakers are known to bake through the night. You come in, the bakers finish for the day. 
you know, whereas for us, it's it's quite loud sometimes, which makes it quite difficult to serve customers because <laughs> mm-hmm. you're kind of like, sorry, what did you say? It's noisy. Um, but it's, you know, it, you know, people's glasses get steamed up. But I think generally people people love the action. They can see the They baking. can see it and they can see how fresh it is and they can smell the product. And they sort of hug, you know, they get a, a warm bread from the shelf and they kind of hug it like a baby. Um, so I think that's a massive part of our, our USP is not just that we're vegan, that we're baking fresh product every day. Um, we don't ever sell anything day old. We if we have anything left. It normally goes to the local food bank. So we really strive for 100% zero waste. We hate food waste. I don't even want to really think about percentages. You know, you have these big corporations like Starbucks that allocate 25 or 30% food waste. And for me, that's just not even an option. I I aim for 5% or less. And if it is, you know, just an unusual slow day, then it goes to the food bank or to other local businesses. Tree for every coffee we sell, all our packaging is compostable. We're plastic free. Um, That's something the locals buy into. We use seasonal organic produce as much as we can. We support and promote our local farmers that are growing it uh, biodynamically and um, have heritage, grain heritage, uh, fruits and vegetables that we try to use mainly in the summer. This time of year, as um, fresh produce becomes unavailable, we we switch to using more dry foods, dry fruits and chocolate and things like that. Um, So the menu is always changing as well. You can't come in and get the same stuff all the time. Um, We only make banana bread in the winter when we can't get um, fresh fruit and we use fair trade organic and second grade bananas so we're even though it's like a long distance fruit with a big footprint uh, we're trying to do it as nice as we can um, for the environment and I think a lot of baking uh, the industry is not focused on the environment it's not focused on sustainability um, and they're very hard set in their ways and not willing to sort of change some bakeries don't even have any vegan options uh, which is mind-blowing to me when you've got like Burger King bringing out ver- v- vegan stuff and then the bakery down the road are just like, we're not vegan at all. And it's just like, well, you're missing out on a huge segment of the market there. Mm. So good exactly. luck. Exactly. What about pricing in terms of, given that you're organic, like you mentioned, you're fair trade. Mm. So presumably that means that, you know, and it shouldn't be that way. And I've said this a lot. You know, to be, <laughs> yeah, to be, it shouldn't be expensive for a business to be ethical, but it is. So how do you kind of manage that and still have a sustained, like, you know, obviously, you know, presumably having to charge customers a bit more than they would get from a regular bakery. How do you manage that and still mm-hmm. manage to have a sustainable business? Well, actually what we found, Katrina, um, is actually our food cost is very good um, or, it, you know, it's where it should be. But actually it's our labor really we struggle with because everything is handmade um and you know slow fermentation sometimes you just have to let the bread you know wait till it's ready so obviously you keep yourself busy doing other things but we haven't actually increased our prices in the in the two and a half years that we've been open so with the increase in labor cost um you know we pay us all of our staff more than 10 percent above the the average um, living wage and everything like that. The, to, minimum the minimum wage to make sure it is a livable wage. Um, and we don't take tips ourselves, even though we can, because we work on the on the floor. We we give them to our staff to make sure we look after our staff, retain staff. So that's now going to be re- reflected more in our pricing. 
you pay the staff the livable wage. So how do you manage that with customers? Like, do they do, are they kind of grumpy because of that? Why is this product so expensive? I'm just curious how you're doing yeah, all of do. that, which is great. Mm. And what we do is we have what's really important for us is upselling. So if somebody orders a cinnamon bun, would you like some cream cheese frosting with that? And it is an extra price. It has to be because we're using vegan cream cheese. We're making it ourselves and all of that. So um, you buy a baguette. Would you like some hummus and olives with that? We're making ethical hummus. We're using organic chickpeas, organic tahinis. We're paying a Canadian in a ski resort to hand peel the garlic because we don't want to use any slave labor out of China. Um, you know, we're, there's hand squeezing lemons and things. And it's, it's, it's as ethical as you can get because um, a lot of like commercial hummus out there, if you actually look into it, it may not have very ethical ingredients. So we're, people can see that they taste it's better and they come back and it's repeat custom it's having a good quality product that people believe in. They'll come back and they'll buy again and again and again. And I, I think that comes, like Natasha said, it comes from education, like letting the customers yeah. know. So yeah. how do you inform them of that? You do blog posts on, mm -hmm. on our website and you do, you know, stories on Instagram or posts of where we're sourcing the product from. Um, you know, we we really love foraging mushrooms. So on our time off, we go and forage mushrooms from <laughs> from the local forest. You know, of course, all edible ones, and we're very safe. We only pick the, the ones that we know. But then they can see that through Instagram, through the story, us picking those mushrooms, preparing the mushrooms, and then having these delicious lunch specials that are available. And again, no one else is doing that where we yeah. are. Um, so it kind of adds that extra excitement to the to the journey and to the to our. Yeah, now profit margins may not be as big as other companies, but we're not focused just on profit. I mean, what's the point of a, a growing economy if the environment's suffering? We're we're way more on a spiritual path of um, doing what we feel is the right thing to do. And um, as long as we make enough money to pay our staff and our costs, and we are for profit as a business, but we're not focused just on profit. Yeah, and I think okay. that's a, a major differentiation between what we're doing and maybe what other massive scalable companies are looking at. Um, we, we kind of um, just believe in taking what you need and having enough money in the bank to pay everyone and, you know, have a, a nice life ourselves uh, without being over extravagant. I, I think that's really what we're about and, so we can keep yeah. the prices and, and hope, affordable. And hopefully influence other businesses that they can see, okay, you know, a vegan business will work in Whistler yeah. and there is the demand. So I think that's we hope to inspire other people, you know, to take that leap and it is worthwhile and it will, um, you know, make you different from other businesses and people, there yeah. is enough of a market there. Nice. And you mentioned that you sold your house to start the business. So mm. and then since then, how has it been funded? Has it kind of literally just paid for itself or talk to us We're, a little bit about I mean, that. we to borrow. We had to borrow more money. It was very expensive. We needed big specialized equipment that would come from Italy. Um, you know, and we sell espresso coffee. So we needed a coffee machine and all these it was mostly the equipment and the build out. Um, we had to put everything in, didn't we? We had to put everything. But so selling the house actually was only 50% of the money that we needed. Oh, wow. But by going to these community lenders, we didn't go to banks. Um, they they had good interest rates and some of them offered, you know, um, uh, some, some assistance, you know, be that uh, business advice or like a mentor. Um, so we're still we still be paying that off for quite a while. We paid off one of our loans, and that was really funny because I paid it all 
quite early because I noticed the interest rates were quite high. My accountant was like, you should really try and get this loan paid off. And I was like, do you know what? We've got the money to pay it off. Let's just pay it off. And then they, they wrote back to me and they said, are you closing down the business? And I said, no, no, we're doing really well, actually. That's why we're paying you off. Nice. <laughs> they were just nice. like really surprised that like somebody had actually paid off their loan in the middle of COVID. Wow. So, um, yeah, we still have one more loan to pay off. Uh, we're scheduled to pay it off within the next year and a half. Um, and then we'll be able to um, pay more back to ourselves. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a slow burner, but um, we're, we believe in the longevity of what we're doing. So we're, de we're yeah. definitely on track. We're making overpayments and things like that. But it's definitely yeah. uh, it's not an easy journey. And that, that keeps us motivated to pay off those loans and Absolutely. pay ourselves back and things like that. Fantastic. So a couple of questions, uh, last question before we, we wrap up. So Natasha, um, as much as you're comfortable sharing this, I know that you shared that you went through the foster care system in the UK and you're now yeah. a successful entrepreneur. And this is interesting because I was listening to a podcast the other day and it was an American guy. Um, I can't remember his name or which podcast it was on because I listened to a variety. But he was saying he grew up in foster care and he actually said that there are statistics that show that kids going through the foster care system typically are quite disadvantaged and they, they don't always yeah. have the success in life or in business. So I'm curious, mm -hmm. do you think that your, you know, because of what you, you went through, is it, is your success in spite of that or because of it? Is there anything that, you know, you experienced that you think maybe has helped you? um as an entrepreneur um it's both in spite of and 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 because of because um when you grow up in and out of foster care the whole system is designed um unintentionally to to keep you in that in that disadvantaged state so for example um when i was 16 social workers wanted to get me out of my foster home and into my own apartment or flat and they had a, a sort of carrot of a thousand pounds um, startup fee. And the reason is because I was taking up the placement that another child could have. Um, but I knew that I wanted to go to university. And I knew that if I went into a flat on my own, I wouldn't achieve that. I needed the structure of a family environment, um, you know, somebody to make meals for me so I could study and that kind of thing that other 16 year olds have. Um, but there was a lot of pressure and even to the point where the social worker didn't talk about it in front of my foster parents she took me to a McDonald's and had a um, would buy me milkshakes and would try and encourage me to do this and they would sort of like try and butter you up and they'd be like kids like McDonald's let's take the kid to McDonald's and like see if they want to move into a flat and get them out of that foster placement and um, I just I remember just always having to say to social workers but I want to go to university um, also like my mum had serious mental health, which is why I was in and out of care a lot. And none of the school uh, teachers or even the students were supportive at all. Um, they sort of treated you like you were going to end up in the same way. And I had people tell me that as well. I had a foster mother when I was eight tell me that I was going to end up where my mother ended up and all really horrible things. So it's definitely in spite of that. However, when you have a challenge, um, say, uh, like like COVID, for example, or, or any other challenges you might have with uh, difficult staff members or something like that you go you sort of cast your mind back to terrible times in your life um like when I was 14 I left home because I was convinced my mother was gonna um lock me in a shed and leave me there and I would die and I was painting the shed and she'd said to me you need to paint this shed so it's good enough to live in and she'd already kicked me out my bedroom and told me I wasn't worthy of having a bedroom. And in my mind, I was painting this shed and I'm like, I'm going to, she's going to lock me in this shed. 
and I'm going to die here. And that's when I had sort of left home. So whenever I have like a bad time, I'm like, well, at least I'm not painting a shed to live in, to die, you know, and be, be killed in basically. So you sort of cast your mind back to these horrific things. You think, ah, this is a walk in the park. You know what I mean? Like, I've been through much worse than this. Like whatever happens, I'm still going to be fine, no matter because I've got I've got out of these situations, much worse situations before, and survived them. So I definitely think that uh, I have an advantage in my disadvantage that I can get through anything. Whereas I watched a lot of other people um, suffer from stress and anxiety of, of life's challenges. I'm like, it's nothing. I dealt with much worse than this at a much younger age. So it. it resilience it's given me resilience I was just going to ask about resilience <laughs> I know when I wrote my book vegan ventures and I interviewed over 60 um, vegan entrepreneurs and I said what do you think the number one quality is or what do you think the different qualities are and the number one <clears throat> was exactly that it was resilience because you've got to have that in running your own business because it's not all smooth sailing there's going to be lots of challenges um, here and there oh, so yeah. thank you so much for sharing that I think that's <laughs> important for people to hear that it doesn't you know necessarily matter from your your background you can you know it can be possible to, to overcome that so really yeah. appreciate you sharing that so finally let us tell us anything about the future so you've got the one uh, business at the moment in Whistler what are your future plans are you looking to scale will you have investors are you going to write a book hint hint you should um you know tell us a bit about any <laughs> any future plans you'd like to share with us <laughs> I mean there's lots of things we'd like to share with you Katrina um and there's there's definitely um, possibilities on the on the horizon in the future. There's there's potential to write a book. There's interest. Um, there's interest from you know a few publishers and things like that. So it's definitely something an avenue we want to we want to go down because there is a huge gap within vegan baking and sourdough. Um, yeah. And then we're not sure we're we're to and fro with with another location or just improve and expand our current offerings. Like at the moment, we're only able to open open four days a week because of starting shortages within Whistler. Um, so we definitely want to expand that to, you know, five or six. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I uh, think you need to expand into the resources that you have before you start going elsewhere and taking on. We see other bakers open up second bakeries and then within a year or two, they've either shut down the whole operation or they've shut down one of the spots. Mm. Um, so we sort of watch other people in the industry and see where they went wrong and wonder if it's actually worth if it's actually scalable in that way to have multiple locations without sacrificing the quality of the product um mm -hmm. you have to have very skilled staff that you trust to to run another place for you mm -hmm. and that can be a challenge in an artisan sourdough environment i think i think for us because we're in such a niche being in a ski town not everyone can afford to come to whistler i think for us a good avenue to look that we are looking into is video tutorials that people can mm. sign up and do online tutorials because having you know six um people in the shop learning directly from me is great and really fun um but i think it's, it's it could spread a lot further if we did videos and people sign up to online courses yeah um, could definitely be an yeah. avenue we, we'll look at especially with your skills ed like you've got the cachet of being a fine dining chef yeah. Um, which I think is good. You can leverage that for sure. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, look, it's been so lovely talking to you both because as I've sort of watched you grow over the years and really kind of <laughs> put yourselves out. And I think you're in the epitome, you know, of a hardworking, uh, you know, a business people who are new to this, you know, both had 
separate careers, you know, working for other people, um, and you've, you know, really made a go of this. You continue to go from strength to strength. You put yourself forward for awards, which were very well deserved. Yeah, I'm so delighted you. that you you won one. <laughs> and I, know, I know that exactly. I know you're big collaborators. And um, one day, if I ever get over to that way, I will look forward to enjoying one of your, um, you know, some of your amazing creations. But really appreciate you sharing your journey, a lot of your insights. I think it will definitely help a lot of people. So if you are going to Whistler at any time, anybody, or even if you're not, go and check out um, Ed's Bread on Instagram, um, but also go and check out the website, which is um, edsbread.com. If you're watching the video of this interview, you'll see that URL scrolling along the bottom. And if you're listening to the audio version, then you will find that link on the show notes page for this episode. Ed and Natasha, it's been wonderful speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Katrina. It's a real honour to be on a vegan business talk. Thanks. Thanks, Katrina. We enjoyed it. So that's it for this episode of Vegan Business Talk. I hope you enjoyed it and found it useful. If you like the show, please give it a review on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on as it helps to get it seen by more people. There are more free resources on the veganbusinessmedia.com website to help you in your quest to build and sustain a successful business. And if you'd like to work with me personally on promoting and growing your vegan business or brand, you'll find details on how to do this on the website at veganbusinessmedia.com and clicking on the Work With Me menu link. Thank you so much for tuning in and I look forward to catching up with you on the next episode of Vegan Business Talk. Bye for now.